get angry because here are their favorite Christmas shows, you know, is the, <laughs> is the peanut special going to be polluted by, uh, you know, these slashing political ads? And it's getting scary. The plane is moving up and down, like it felt like 12 to 20 feet at a, at a, at a windburst. Maybe it wasn't that bad, but boy, I was scared. I think both sides thought we were going to win. Um, I think, I know our pollster thought we were going to win. The matchup was set in the special election to fill the vacant seat left by the September 1995 resignation of U.S. Senator Bob Packwood. U.S. Congressman Ron Wyden, the Democratic choice, versus Oregon Senate President Gordon Smith on the Republican side. The Republican primary ended up being a runaway for Smith, who won with 63% of the vote. Most political observers, including his own staff, credited his ability to kickstart his campaign with a large personal loan for giving Smith the opportunity to build name ID statewide. A distant second in the primary was former Oregon Secretary of State Norma Paulus, with just 25% of the vote. Considered more moderate and part of the old guard in Oregon GOP politics, Paulus's defeat is seen as a key pivot point for the party in the 1990s. On the Democratic side, things were a little closer due to the popularity of the two frontrunners. Democrats had to choose between Wyden, who represented the Portland area in Congress, and Congressman Peter DeFazio, the populist from a district downstate that included Eugene and parts of southern and coastal Oregon. The party's primary voters picked Wyden, giving him 49% of the vote to DeFazio's 43%. The general election race would feature two very different candidates, Ron Wyden, the longtime member of Congress from Portland, versus Gordon Smith, the frozen vegetable magnet from Pendleton. This is Kevin Curry, and in this third episode of the first season, we revisit the moment that a general election like no other stretches over the holidays Santa Claus gets pulled into the mix. One candidate swears off negative ads against the advice of his campaign. And the campaigns sprint to spread their message and get ballots back as historic wind, rain, and ice pound Oregon. With the primary election behind them, the Wyden and Smith campaigns had no time to catch their breath. Because of the tight calendar for the special election, with election day coming at the end of January, the campaigns were forced to do something they had never done previously, actively campaign over the winter. As the first all-vote-by-mail federal election, it also meant the need to change tactics to reflect this new reality. No longer would they simply build it to a single election day and drive voter turnout that one day. Rather, ballots would be mailed to voters up to 14 days in advance. Voters could then return them at any time, via mail or in person, as long as the ballot was received by 8 p.m. on Election Day. Instead of one possible Election Day, it amounted to multiple Election Days. For voters, it also meant something they'd never seen before. Politics mixed in with the winter holidays. Phil Keesling was Oregon's Secretary of State and the elected official who decided to run this special election entirely vote-by-mail. His goal was to demonstrate that it works as an approach for all elections in Oregon. In the dead of winter, 
we're now being subjected to lots of TV ads and lots of phone calls and lots of door knocks and and uh, all this and both campaigns for Senator Smith and Senator, now Senator Wyden are having to really rethink how we contact voters, how we manage. And of course, again, they were already having to do that. Uh, you know, 1984, maybe three or 5% of the ballots cast came in via mailed out ballots. We call them absentees at the time, but when you make it no excuse, no reason to call them absentee ballots, it's confusing. By 1994, you're looking at close to, I think if I remember the statistics right, close to 40% of people voting this way, and it's looking to be even more in, in 96. And um, uh, so it's clearly something that voters are preferring. So campaigns are already having to adjust. They're already having to figure out who's voting very early and, and getting messages to them. And Dan Levy, chief of staff and campaign manager for Gordon Smith, recognized the odd nature of a general election being run over the winter. He also recognized the importance of this race, not just for Oregonians. Well, it was it was kind of crazy, to be honest with you. I mean, so the primary was like December 5th or 6th. So we immediately, you know, Wyden and Smith start going at it, one another, um, knowing that they were going to have this run up to Christmas time and then probably have some sort of a hiatus. Um, in some respects, this was the last campaign of 1994 where the Republicans had swept in uh, running against, you know, Hillary Clare, Hillary Care and, and Clinton's health care plan. At its core, however, the election settled into a fairly routine set of dynamics for a statewide campaign in Oregon. It captured many of the differences among voters within the state. Um, and Gordon was definitely running as the outsider businessman running to change Washington. Um, and uh, Ron Wyden was running as the, you know, experienced Democrat who delivered, you know, for Portland uh, and for the state, but mostly for Portland because he was a congressman from Portland. And so those were the dynamics. There was definitely a right-left dynamic. There was an insider-outsider dynamic. There was an Eastern Oregon, rural Oregon versus Portland dynamic. Um Ron was Jewish. Gordon was a Mormon. That actually got played up quite a bit in media coverage. It was how unusual that was uh, in Oregon to have that. Um, so there were a lot of clear contrasts in, in the race. For the Wyden campaign, it was time to consolidate the Democratic Party around their candidate. In both Oregon and nationally, Democrats badly wanted a win in the first federal election since Republican Newt Gingrich swept his party into power in the U.S. Congress. And they hoped that momentum would carry the party forward into 1996 and the re-election effort of President Bill Clinton. Brian Clem was the young deputy campaign manager for the Wyden campaign. Tons of staff, tons of money. Um, and it was, you know, it was the first election after Gingrich had taken over Congress. And so the Democrats needed a win bad to show that they had maybe reversed the, you know, stem the tide. And so Clinton was up for re-election and would have been in 96. This is 95. So the Clinton-Gore people cared about not having the message be that, that uh, you know, Republicans are now going to get the White House after having just gotten Congress. That excitement on the Democratic side resulted in more resources, people and money, from across the country. And certainly the DSCC cared a lot. And I don't think they overly weighed in in the primary, but as soon as that was over, boom. And so a lot of people I know now 
came to Oregon as staffers sent by their national interest group. Like my colleague, Barbara Smith Warner, the majority leader, she got sent by her union to work out here and then loved Oregon, met her husband and stayed. And a bunch of people came out here for the very first. Steve Novick, he came out here. He, he you know, came and worked on our campaign. And then after that, went and worked for the Bruguer campaign and then stayed, became a city commissioner. So a bunch of people got sent here by national groups because it was the only game in town. So there was, if you're a political professional, that's where the work was. Jeff Mapes is a longtime political reporter in Oregon. At the time, he was covering the race for the Oregonian. The timing of the election presented a campaign like none he'd ever covered before. Uh, you know, it's funny. Well, I'm thinking about it chronologically. And the first thing is the weirdness of having this campaign run headlong into the holiday season. I'd never had that experience before. Uh, you just don't usually, you don't usually have political candidates uh, bumping up against Santa Claus. For campaign staff, like Lori Hardwick, the finance director for Gordon Smith's campaign, it meant a holiday season filled with politics and only politics. And then I know at least the staff, you know, nobody went home for Christmas. At least I didn't, because my parents are in Eastern Oregon, you know? And we had a bunch of people out here from um, the Senatorial Committee and from Washington, D.C., as did Wyden's campaign in their shop. And I, all those people stayed here over the holidays, basically. Wyden staffers, like Brian Clem, found themselves in the same situation. Yeah, and I remember, you know, not seeing my family for Thanksgiving or Christmas, my parents or anything, because it there was no time. So, you know, Christmas Day, Thanksgiving Day, we were doing campaign stuff because you only had whatever, 45 days till ballots drop or, or 45 days till it's over, 30 days till ballots drop. And, you know, and so your general election was compressed into this super tight window beginning of December. People are starting to ramp up for the holidays a little bit. So they're kind of tuning out to anything work or other politics related because they're thinking about their Christmas list and where they're going to go for Christmas and, you know, getting in that holiday spirit. And we're trying to convince them to pay attention to politics. The timing of the race also had people wondering how receptive voters would be to political campaigns during this time of the year. Jeff Mapes recognized the challenge the campaigns faced. People were really unsure how to how to advertise over the Christmas season. You know, bear in mind, everybody's thinking that the, the ballots are going to come out in early January. I can't remember the exact date. And so you really want to be doing a lot of advertising in that December time period. But then are voters even going to uh, spend any time, um, you know, paying attention to those ads? Are they going to get angry because... Here are their favorite Christmas shows. You know, is the <laughs> is the Peanuts special going to be polluted by uh, you know these slashing political ads inside the campaigns? Staffers were also worried about the impact an election over the holidays would have on the traditional approach to campaigning. And the one thing I do remember, at least about the advertising portion of the campaign, and I know Wyden was getting it as well, was that people were really grouchy about negative advertising at Christmas. They were like, can't you just pull down the ads at Christmas? You know, this is ridiculous. We're trying to have a holiday, and every time we turn on the TV, it's just all about, you guys, TV, radio, everywhere. It's, and it's bad. It's negative. Because the national committees that came in we're probably doing some of the most negative advertising of all, right? Well, first of all, you know, the playbook had been go negative on your opponent if you're, you know, either in trouble or 
you want to define them before they can define themselves. And so Gordon is beating the heck out of Ron and Ron is beating the heck out of Gordon for di- you know different strategies. We're trying to define him as this corporate evil, polluting, greedy guy. And he's trying to define Ron as this out of touch, you know, terrible fit for, for Oregon. And it's Christmas. So everyone's like, Hey, let's go Christmas caroling. And we're like, well, could you not do that? And I know you just saw a bunch of ads where we called him the devil, but could you come out and, and, uh, you know, volunteer to, you know, go canvassing. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. But people were getting tired of, um, during the holidays, more than I think normal, having the negative vibe going from both of them. Vote by mail and the unique timing of this election had an impact on more than just messaging and advertising strategy. Lori Hardwick was in charge of raising the millions of dollars Gordon Smith would need to win this election. The techniques she relied on during a normal campaign had to be adjusted by the timing of this election. So it was really uh, a very interesting time. And for my part, as a fundraiser, you know, we were doing fundraising events over the holidays in people's homes at Christmas time, right? I remember we had a fundraising event maybe like the 23rd of December and then another one um, on January 3. You know, because all these U.S. senators had said, hey, we're coming out. This race means a lot to us. We got to win it and we want to come out and help you raise money. And I was like, "Okay, well, what's the date? Well, the first week of January and we just finished a big one and now we're going to roll into another one. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, over the holidays, it's a lot, Um, you know, and on the fundraising end, that's really tough because, you know, people, though, are very generous at the end of the year. But, you know. Who wants to go to a political fundraising event on, you know, basically Christmas Eve? On top of the challenges of the season, Phil Kiesling's decision to conduct this election entirely via mail ballots also changed how fundraising needed to happen, plus how much would be needed. Uh, That impacts fundraising significantly, and we, of course, learned that. And um, part of what, you know, I did... uh, in my plan was to determine, you know, you have to determine how much money you're going to need by the time people start voting. And really, we knew that by, by you know, January 1, you had to just keep having all this money. And it was going over such a long period of time, which was so unusual, you know, for what we had experienced before. But you just every day had to have money coming in in a very significant way to be paying for the things that you were doing. And that was an unusual thing with vote by mail that we'd never experienced before. And I do think in hindsight, you know, vote by mail costs a lot more money in elections than it would normally cost. Fortunately, for fundraising professionals like Hardwick, changes in technology presented new opportunities for reaching people. The hot new piece of tech for this election? The fax machine. The Wyden-Smith race was the advent of the fax machine, as you may or may not recall, but I do because I've been through a lot of technology in campaigns. Um, And at that time, you know, you were either doing fundraising on the phone with the candidate, myself, the finance committee members, or uh, literally via the fax machine. So we'd be sending out notices, letters, whatever, to to people on the finance committee and donors saying, you know, help us out send your check, you know, all those kind of things. So 
Um, but you did have to, with vote by mail, you had to just be doing it constantly. And I would always complain in a campaign, and it's true today, and it was probably true before that, but every single day there's a marker for fundraising, right? You have to meet a goal every single day. And that's not true of every other piece of a campaign necessarily. Um, you know, how many, how much money you have versus how many people you have that are on the ground sometimes, all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, literally, if you missed your goals on money, you weren't on TV. So you couldn't be doing that. Even with changes in technology, some of the best fundraising is done person to person. A finance committee is a tried and true part of political campaigns and usually features prominent citizens and business owners with significant connections. Getting the right people raising money on your behalf can make the difference between winning and losing. Hardwick loves to tell the story about the Smith campaign's attempt to enlist Oregon business icon, Les Schwab, owner of a popular and highly successful tire business, to help raise money. He stepped up, but not in the way they expected. One um, kind of interesting anecdote about the election that I love to tell is that um, Les Schwab was a supporter of Gordon's, but he didn't really like to get super, he didn't really like to be super well-known in politics or whatever. But, you know, being from Prineville and Eastern Oregon, he sort of shared Gordon's values. And um, Gordon called him and asked him, hey, do you think you could, you know, raise some money for me, serve on my finance committee? He didn't want to be on the finance committee, but he said, sure, I'll go raise some money. Well, one day I, we opened up the mail and, you know, in this envelope, there were, you know, multitudes of checks um, that he had and a handwritten letter from Les that he'd gathered up and said, I hope this helps, right? And they were 10s and 25s and, you know, 50s. It wasn't, you know, thousands. It was just his friends. He'd walked around town and said, hey, I'm helping Gordon Smith. You think you could help me? And they probably wrote a check and handed, you know, it was really, it was kind of fun. The campaigns did their best to embrace the unique challenges that came with an election over the holidays. Some ideas may have worked while others might have been a bit of a stretch. Both Brian Clem and Dan Levy remember one particular incident that could only occur during December. Not that we didn't do some funny stuff. So one day we hear that Gordon Smith is going to be campaigning with Santa Claus down around Pioneer Square somewhere. One really ridiculous thing that happened was... We decided, we're trying to think of what kind of what clever ideas could we do during the Christmas time. So we came up with this silly idea that Santa Claus was going to endorse Gordon for the U.S. Senate, right? It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek deal. So we organized this press conference, um, downtown Portland, Pioneer Square. There was an old-time lobbyist, I think, I think it was Ted Hughes, who wore his Santa Claus suit. And I think it was the lobbyist Ted Hughes was playing Santa Claus, uh, who later, uh, as I once I got elected to the legislature, I got to know Ted. And um, so we, we somehow we get wind, you know, there's a press release that went out to all the news media. Gordon's going to be down there. So we decide we're going to put on this stunt where we, uh, the staff, all dress up as elves and we start making protest signs about the unfair sweatshop conditions that Santa's got us in. And... You know, we do this deal, we're going to have a photo op, right, where Santa puts his arm around Gordon and, you know, Gordon was handing out maybe some candy canes to people on the street or whatever. We're going to accept the endorsement. Well, the Wyden campaign had gotten word that we were going to do this. And one of the big issues in the race, one of the attacks on Gordon was the management of his frozen food uh, processing facility in eastern Oregon, 
where there had been a spill in a creek and some not pollution, but CO2 oxygen got in the in the dry creek bed and killed some fish. Um, so they were, you know, calling Gordon a corporate polluter. And so we're taking Max over and we get off early because we we want to kind of surprise him. And uh, I look over and I don't know if Gordon was in the Max or just Dan Levy was in the Max, but I see him on the phone and he's looking over and then he double takes and he sees all the elves. And whoever he's on the phone to was like who he needed to tell or he had to get off. But I can see a frantic dash to like alert them to what's going on. And I'll never forget, we had come up with this song that was Jingle Bells, Pine Creek Smells, Gordon Spilled Again. The DEQ said the fish are dead. Ron will save the day. So we just kept singing that song while holding our protest signs. And Gordon, being the class act he was, was so nice. He just came in. He had Santa with him. He said, Merry Christmas to all you elves. And then like shook shook everyone's hand. And I could see him coming. And at that point, I'm kind of embarrassed with myself or mortified. And oh, I should back up. I was a staffer in the 95 session when he was Senate president. I was around him all the time as a staffer watching how he worked. And he is a very honorable guy, you know, not a crazy zealot. He wasn't like Newt Gingrich revisited, even though he got to be Senate president, but just great temperament. So I, I knew he was a nice guy, but, you know, it's politics and we're thinking we got to beat him up. And so we're making up this stuff. And he's coming towards our group and he's shaking hands, coming at me. And I'm embarrassed, frankly. So I put my sign up in front of my face with whatever it said on it. And his, his hand reaches under my side and, and appears in front of my face. So I, I shake it. But I just pray to this day that he never knew it was me. And I'm just so embarrassed about it. So they were doing their own version of the funny. It got kind of out of hand at one point, like there was almost a scuffle uh, developed. And all I remember was Gordon and I kind of running down what I think is Morrison Street and ducking into a Starbucks with Jeff Mapes of the Oregonian in tow uh, to conduct this interview, um, getting Santa's endorsement. So the Wyden campaign kind of got the better of us and that they, they injected their message into our uh, event. And, and Mapes covered the whole piece as sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, symbol of what was going on both at the Christmas time holiday and, and of this crazy race. Each state has its own political landscape, which is often driven by the most popular politicians that call it home. Oregon is no different. In 1995, there was no more prominent elected official than longtime U.S. Senator Mark Hatfield. Someone known for working across the aisle, Hatfield was no fan of hard-hitting campaign tactics, although he had to resort to them for his own re-election in 1990. Some political operatives at the national level didn't seem to understand the nature of the campaign in Oregon, nor the proper role that popular Oregon politicians would be willing to play. That led to a little friction between Dan Levy of the Smith campaign and the GOP powers at higher levels. So here's a funny race. Senator Hatfield, the outgoing senator, well, no, pardon me, he was not the outgoing senator at this point. So Senator Hatfield was in the U.S. Senate. He had not announced yet if he was going to run for re-election in 1996. So he was the incumbent U.S. senator, a legend in Oregon politics, and he announced shortly after the primary that he would endorse Gordon, and he did. Uh, and um, we cut some footage of Senator Hatfield uh, supporting Gordon. My recollection is it was 
filmed, because Congress was in session, it was filmed in Washington in a studio someplace. Uh, and it was Hatfield talking, saying, you know, nice things about Gordon, right? Well, we're heading into the Christmas holiday period. And um, there's two or three of us left in the headquarters during this time period. And our media consultant, our TV consultant, proposed an idea. They cut an ad. And in those days, you know, there wasn't digital. You couldn't see the ad. So you'd, you'd literally listen to them over the phone. And then maybe someone would FedEx you a videotape of it so you could see it and approve it. So the time was there. So we listened to this ad. And it was a negative ad against Wyden during the holidays that they interspersed like 15 seconds of positive Senator Hatfield in this ad. Well, I was pretty green at the time, but I was smart enough to know that putting Senator Hatfield's positive ad into a negative ad would not fly in the eyes of Senator Hatfield. It didn't take a rocket science to figure that out. But I remember the sinking gut, the feeling I had in my stomach sitting there listening to this ad. I think it might've been on Christmas Eve when we'd pulled the ads down and it was gonna start like two days after Christmas. And me having to argue with these national political consultants, these ad makers, that this was a bad idea and we couldn't do it. Um, And at that point, one of those guys referred to me as a local rube, which became a joke among a group of people now. It still is. For about 30 years later, I've been referred to as a local rube who put the kibosh on a on a positive negative ad with Senator, featuring Senator Hadfield to run between Christmas and New Year's. The dawning of the new year meant it was time to kick things into high gear for both campaigns. It also brought additional attention from outside of Oregon as the national media, interest groups, and politicians began to pay attention to this special election way out west. Oregonian reporter Jeff Mapes noticed the shift. Well, then in January, I think, uh, certainly I be- started focusing on or becoming more aware of the importance of mail voting, you know, and that it was really a turnout race. And everybody was talking about that. And of course, you hear the same thing in any race, you know, that turnout is hugely important. But uh, then the issue became, you know, how successful are they during this period after the ballots go out in getting their voters out. And and then the, the, the second thing was just the amount of national attention coming in the race. And that was unusual for me because, you know, I was used to uh, Senate races being conducted at the normal election time when you have 32 or whatever other Senate races taking place. And here, um, nothing else was going on. Both parties were focused on winning that seat. So you had lots of national groups uh, piling in with ads, some of them very slashing. The Smith campaign began to shore up its support among rural Oregonians. Dan Levy recalls this unique opportunity given their candidate's hometown of Pendleton in eastern Oregon. Well, I remember barnstorming the state in a small plane, you know, around eastern and southern Oregon in the snow, uh, which was really stupid, but I remember doing that. Uh, with Paulette Pyle and some other people. And, um, you know, it was funny about that because the rural-urban dynamic was really front and center. And Gordon was, you know, running as sort of the son of rural Oregon. There had never been a, a U.S. senator elected from east of the mountains since like 1930 or something. Uh, 
And so there was almost a folk hero environment going on. And I remember thinking when Paulette proposed this fly around, you know, in mid to late January of these small towns, how crazy it sounded. But when we landed uh, in John Day uh, in a light snowstorm, you know, there was like 100 people uh, out at the out of the airfield, you know, with signs and that sort of thing. It was a testament to her organizational skills. But I remember at the time thinking, you know, there's something going on here. And for the rural parts of the state to be able to have a U.S. senator who understands their economy, their way of life, uh, was a very, very important dynamic in Gordon's political brand. With the holidays in the rearview mirror, Jeff Mapes saw the increasing attention the race was getting from national groups and that things started to get a little more ugly. There was the, the Teamsters Union ran an ad that was supposedly independent, that the Wyden campaign didn't have anything to do with, that criticized Smith's safety record at his frozen food plant. And, and you know, Smith had had several safety violations. I mean, he was in a high-hazard industry. I remember writing a story about it, and, um, you know, he was somewhere depending on what metric you used around the middle of the pack for those types of um, industrial settings. Still, be that as it may, I mean, that's, um, you know, that's a pretty uh, incendiary thing to have in an ad. And, um, and I think in all the back and forth on that might have been when Wyden just said, you know what, I'm not going to do any negative ads. And he made a big deal about it because there had been a lot of negative up to that point. And, um, and that turned out to be a, a, a smart strategic uh, pivot to make on Wyden's part. Cooling off your political rhetoric and pulling negative ads in the heat of the final run is about the boldest move a candidate can make. Win or lose, it is what you will be remembered for. Ron Wyden put it all on the line with one decision. Brian Clem from the Wyden team and Dan Levy from the Smith team give us an inside look at what that meant for their campaigns. Against advice, I mean, against advice. Like we had polling and people said, this is starting to work. You know, Gordon is starting to get defined as a, you know, as a business guy who didn't take care of, you know, his, his environmental issues. And that's a big thing in Oregon. So it's working. And he said, look, I am just, it's not who I am. And I am getting so much chatter from people when I'm out campaigning that, you know, I think it's honestly something had to do with the holiday spirit. They just weren't interested in it. It's just people are getting a good mood and then it's New Year's and they're happy. And, you know, again, we're just beating the heck out of each other. Bad, nasty ads on both sides, dead fish floating in the rivers. And I forgot what all they were hitting Ron on, but, you know, massive tax increases and various liberal, you know, terrible things he's done. And I think about two weeks before Election Day, so this would have been mid-January, Wyden, this race had been very negative. I mean, both sides are just hammering each other. It's the only race in town, lots of TV ads. And Wyden decided, I'm going to go 100% positive. And he pulled his negative ads, put an ad on the air saying, I'm going 100% positive. We just end up in this situation where, um, and I was not there at the meeting because this is the other funny part. I was out like trying to confirm opposition research where in Pendleton, these people had said, oh, he did this or he did that. And I tried to see if it was actually viable or not. And 
I guess Ron just said, I, nope, I don't care if I lose. No, no more. We're going ice cream socials. And this is January. It's not ice cream time. But he's like, we're going ice cream socials and accentuate the positive. And they had this little song, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. And then like that was all you were allowed to say in the office from then on. And if you kept trying to do the political consultant advisor thing, like, hey, you're going to lose. Like, I'm telling you, you got to get those negative ads back up. He would just be like, nope, not happening. I will not authorize it. We won't pay for it. And strategically, what it did for him was it gave his supporters and his base some incentive to vote for him. Um, to turn out. Uh, because when a race is very, very negative on both sides, what it has a tendency to do is to suppress turnout. People don't get, people are dis- demotivated to support their candidate. And so it was a shrewd and clever thing. Um, and so he, um, you know, he gambled that, that it was the wrong message um, at that time, at that moment. Uh, because sometimes, frankly, you know, negative campaigns are the way to, to get yourself pulled back from the brink, um, beating up the other person. But he, he made the right call. It got him, you know, by whatever, 0.8 tenths of 1% over the finish line. We kind of fumbled with that. We, we didn't, I don't think we knew quite what to do. I think we followed suit two or three days later. But at that point, there were independent groups running negative ads against Wyden on our behalf that we didn't control uh, and so we really couldn't take those ads down. You don't control them, all that. So it was a it was a smart move for him, and it got him headlines and attention, kind of a new burst of energy there towards the end, which was which was smart and effective for him. It probably it probably won him the race. So I think there was at least one independent expenditure group that was like maybe the Teamsters or somebody who continued to go negative. So I know that was always a source point. They're like, well, Ron's saying these things, but you, you got to get them to stop if you really want to earn the mantle of clean campaigner. So that whole issue of could you go clean and then halt your interest groups from doing it? And were they helping or were they hurting you more? Because we had polling that said um, of those who had voted already, which that's where the more of the head-to-head dirty campaigning had taken place, we were losing. But of those who hadn't voted, we were winning. So we had to get more people voting. And the key reason was, because you know Oregon is a Democratic state, they weren't normally going to vote for a Republican, but the key reason was they were giving Ron credit for the clean campaign pledge. And so it was, it was a... It was a calculated risk to, you know, to go fully positive. But the the theory was always that these folks knew, you know, that, you know, the Wyden people knew they could be positive while these people were negative. I was not in those because they were truly would have been independent expenditures where it would be illegal for coordination. I'm not sure that we liked it because what we saw in the polling was anyone who gave us credit for going positive, we were going to get their vote. And they could have screwed that up for us with too much of that to where they felt we were being disingenuous. Um, but yeah, there definitely was still some stuff going on. Um, I think there was the Teamster. Somebody, some, some, some IE group was still doing some stuff. I don't know if it was huge money. Um, Ron had this one, I remember, he's in a sweater and he turns and faces the camera and says, I just can't take it anymore. And I know Oregonians are sick of it, so I'm calling it all off. And that was the main commercial we, that we spent our money on uh, the whole, the, basically the whole rest of the way. With no other elections going on in America, or in Oregon, 
events at the national level had an outsized influence on the race. Um, the other important thing that happened during this campaign was the government shutdown um, between Gingrich and Clinton uh, in December that people may remember. Huge deal, huge deal that, that hurt the Republicans, helped Clinton. Right, yeah, and I think the shutdown probably did not help Gordon Smith at all. Certainly uh, his uh, being uh, endorsed by the Oregon Citizens Alliance came back to bite him, and Wyden hit him a lot on the abortion issue. Uh, I don't know that there was much overt discussion of gay rights in that campaign, but certainly there were uh, a lot of liberals uh, who were upset at, at Smith f for that. And it wouldn't surprise me if that had made its way into some of the advertising, perhaps. And then just a few days before the, uh, the actual election day in the end of January was the State of the Union address, where Bill Clinton famously delivered the line, uh, the era of big government is over. Uh, and the response to that uh, was given by Bob Dole. And I remember sitting in the campaign headquarters watching that speech with Gordon and some others, thinking, wow, Clinton really delivered a masterstroke. And then Bob Dole, bless his heart, coming on, looking much older than his age, although he was much older. Uh, I think somebody in the crowd referenced that Bob Dole looked like Vincent Price uh, in this deal, and, and it really hurt us in the polls. The government shutdown hurt us. Uh, our polling showed it. And Clinton pivoting to to his famous triangulation strategy, which resuscitated his for political fortunes. And that literally happened in the six-week period during this special election, where Clinton was down from the 94 elections, pivots politically, and secures himself a second term a year and a half later, uh, both on the backs of the government shutdown uh, and the power of his triangulation strategy where he declared the era of big government over. One state, one race, you know, all eyes of the nation on this. Uh, and so you don't have any other dynamics in the race. So the national environment impacted the race significantly. Uh, our polling, we were, I think we came at the start of the primary, Gordon started like, gosh, I wanna say 18 points, 19 points behind Wyden in our internal polls. Uh, and of course, we ended up losing by you know a point and a half or something. But those those two events of the government shutdown and the the State of the Union address helped helped the Democrats, helped Clinton, therefore helped widen, and it hurt us. On the finance side of the campaign, Lori Hardwick was dealing with the uncertainty of vote by mail and how much money the Smith team would need to run ads and contact voters. Well, if it's not just the two weeks leading up to election day that you have, because literally you have to be known by the people that you're talking to before that time. So it's really an, an entire month, maybe a little bit more of advertising that needs to be done in a vote by mail situation. Whereas if you're just voting on an election day, it gets done to, you know, you start rolling in two weeks before the election, right? Like, it's just a much longer period of time, costing much more money, you know, because you're literally every week is, every every week for a month or a month and 
a half even now is is election day, right? And because you're in vote by mail, things can change in an election. And sometimes somebody makes a mistake or what have you, and then you got to ramp it up even more. And if somebody starts advertising more than you, you wonder, should you be advertising? And that can increase the cost as well. But it's really much more than just the voting period that you're uh, raising money for. It's the voting period. It's, it's two to three weeks before the voting period that you need to have the money so that by the time people start voting on day one, they know you, they're going to vote for you, you know, and all those things. So it's a little bit more, and that's why it's so costly. Heading into the home stretch, both campaigns looked for every possible advantage they could find. For Ron Wyden's team, that meant Brian Clem began driving some high-profile politicians around the state of Oregon. I was driving in my Ford Explorer, and I have Al Gore and Ron in the back seat. And I'm driving them out to this rally, and we're all brainstorming how to say something about mudslinging and, and Oregon. And we're kind of going through it. I'm driving, you know, and I see there's a vice president of the United States back there in my car. And uh, and they're going, at, you know, like, oh, so, so yeah, you know, it, it's, it rains a lot here. And, you know, and we got a lot of mud. And so it's like, you know, we can we can fight it out in Oregon, but we don't need to sling the mud or it rains a lot. But we don't you know, we don't need to sling mud just because it's raining. And we're trying to figure out the way to say it. And finally, I don't remember who somebody comes up with. We can campaign in the rain without slinging the mud. And then I like, I see Al Gore on TV that night, national news saying it. I'm like, that was Mike Backseed. Yes. Over at the Smith campaign, Dan Levy had hopes that an unexpected endorsement might help tip the scales their way. And actually, you know, the other thing that happened during that time period was the Oregonian endorsed Smith over Wyden. And it created this huge deal. A funny little thing happened. They endorsed Paulus over Gordon in the primary. But the editors changed from the time Bob Caldwell took over as editor between the prime in this one-month period. Um, And Bob took a little different point of view on this. And we went in really hard trying to get that endorsement because we thought, "Eh, if Wyden gets the Oregonian, no big deal. If we get the Oregonian endorsement, that's a really, really big deal. And so we went in and, and, again, we prepared very hard. One of the things, the arguments we made was that it was, would be unifying for the state to have a senator from outside the Portland area and that serving as state senate president where you have a view of the whole state and all the issues is better experience for a U.S. senator than a congressman strictly from Portland. Um, and so we tried to play the rural-urban card to our advantage uh, with the Oregonian, and it, and it ultimately worked. Um, now, there was such a backlash to the Oregonian's endorsement on a Sunday that the following Sunday, um, they, the Oregonian wrote an editorial kind of explaining why they endorsed Smith over Wyden and running these transcripts of the interviews, um, which kind of to explain themselves. Uh, to angry readers who just assumed the liberal Portland newspaper would endorse the liberal Portland congressman. Um, And so that was an interesting dynamic, too. And getting that Oregonian endorsement was a huge boost uh, for us going into that final two weeks. With ballots out and the election day deadline for returning them fast approaching, 
the Wyden campaign pulled out all the stops. This meant a tired candidate, tired staffers, and some scary situations. So, yeah, we had what was called the 24-hour campaign day. And I remember my shifts were middle of the day in Salem and then again at 3 a.m. at the Beanery in Corvallis. And the thing was, Ron had all these 20-year-olds working for him. None of us could keep up with him. Like, he burned through us like crazy to where we're having to hand off left and right. But he's like, let's go, let's go. So, you know, we knew which Fred Myers stayed opened all night. We knew where the all-night college campus coffee shops were. You know, and there was going to be a rally in Portland and this thing in Coos Bay. And so he went on a 24-hour, literally no-sleep streak and stopping in all these towns trying to do GOTV and pump people up and keep the volunteers motivated. And and it was his energy because the rest of us were tired and kind of afraid we might lose. And it was his energy that propelled him across the finish line. No, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Ron Wyden spent the last, I want to say, three or four days of the campaign literally just barnstorming the state. I think at one point he was campaigning 24 hours a day or something crazy. He might have skipped a night or two of sleep. Deputy campaign manager Brian Clem remembers his stint during the 24-hour day, which included a bit more excitement than he planned on. There was a day where we had a woman from the New York Times, because there was a lot of national interest from the press, just like the interest groups in this race. And she was doing an interview, and we were down in... I think it was Medford, Southern Oregon uh, somewhere. And we were flying back. And somewhere on the earlier in the day, we got the news that Kitsopper was going to shut Portland down because of these big windstorms that were coming. We were in a single, was it single engine? Maybe it was. Anyway, very small plane. Me in the passenger seat, pilot in his seat, and two seats that faced each other in the back. And it's getting scary. The plane is moving up and down like it felt like 12 to 20 feet at a at a at a windburst. Maybe it wasn't that bad, but boy, I was scared. And Ron in the back is kind of like, are we are we okay? You know, are, are we doing okay? And it is so foggy, no visibility, and then your plane is just moving. And you know, we'd certainly heard stories of the political figures who had died in plane wrecks while going around. I mean, I think I don't know if Ron Brown had yet, but there's certainly Oregon lost a governor that way, and I think a secretary of state too. And so we're kind of freaking out. Like, like I, I'm getting real nervous, and and Ron's trying to you know keep it cool, but he's faced the wrong way, and he's looking out at at um, the reporter. She's scared. He's trying to be strong for all of us. He's like, we're, we're doing okay, right? We're doing okay. So I don't remember now if I have it right, but I think she threw up on him and, and it happened like mid flight and I didn't like fully realize it. So when we finally got ground you know, safely besides kissing the ground, she had to, or he had to, someone had to like give the other one their, their raincoat because the clothing was not good. And so I think we got a good article out of it. That, that was the good news. But it was clear he was going to do every step it took because, like, there was a point where it's like, well, maybe we, maybe we don't fly back. Maybe we drive back. Well, then he was going to miss several campaign events in the metro area, which was key. And the pilot was like, no, we, we you know, it's safe. And, and other people, you know, were like, eh, you know, I'm not sure. And Ron's like, let's fly. We can do it. And, you know, the pilot saying it's safe. It's safe. And sure enough, it was. So if we had gotten in the car, we wouldn't have the great story about the reporter throwing up on him, and we probably wouldn't have won. Campaigns come down to blocking and tackling the basics, getting your voters to vote. 
Jeff Mapes, who covered the campaign for the Oregonian, believes this is one reason that vote-by-mail has favored Democratic candidates over the years. One of the uh, most enduring lines I remember from that uh, was Dan Levy telling me that, he said, you know, it's like Groundhog Day. Uh, Once the ballots go out, you know, you get up in the morning and you go out and try to, you know, get people to cast their ballots. And then you get up the next morning and you do the very same thing. And, uh, And that turns out to be the big reason why vote by mail has been such a huge advantage to Democrats in this state. I'm not sure this is true in every state, but Democrats are, you know, traditionally they've been better at getting to doorsteps in Oregon. And so when you give them two weeks to get out the vote rather than one day, um, that's going to work for them. For Brian Clem and the Wyden campaign, Getting people to return their ballots and assisting them in that effort meant inventing an entirely new system. Well, we were inventing a system because it was, you know, just been laid out by the Secretary of State we were doing this. So we invented a system on our own of like an audit trail. So if we came, it it was legal to go and get someone's ballot. But what if, you know, one of us threw it away or lost it? Like, how do they know, right? So we had this little badge we made up and like a little receipt we would give people, but there was no official state of Oregon way to do it. Well, uh, I mean, there was a lot of discussion about uh, whether you could, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, do what's now called ballot harvesting, where you're taking ballots from, you know, encouraging people to give you ballots that you would then take to the elections office. And and the Democrats did do some of that, as I recall, and there was some controversy about it. The Republicans might have done some. One way campaigns can target their efforts is by regularly pulling lists of voters who have returned their ballot prior to Election Day. In Oregon, this information is public record. Campaigns can then remove those people from their contact lists and mailing lists. This saves them money and allows them to focus on those who haven't voted yet. Jeff Mapes explains how this differs from past elections. I think the biggest thing was just taking advantage of all that time you have to get out the vote. Uh, I mean, what a new, particularly that you had this new tool, really, that you didn't have in a polling place election where you could find out who voted and, and, and then compare that to your, your list that you had of candidate uh, of voters who you thought were supporting you, and then you could go hit up the people who hadn't voted yet and say, "Hey, get your ballot in," and and that sort of thing. And so there were a lot of uh, techniques around making sure that all your supporters got out to vote that really just weren't available to them in the short window of election day. Brian Clem describes how the Wyden system also made sure they couldn't be accused of anything improper related to their ballot collection. Yeah, we would basically give them something saying, this is you know, my name and I'm from the Wyden campaign and I picked up your ballot and here's a carbon copy of this paper that said I picked up your ballot and promised to deliver it. And some little badge that said, you know, I'm officially with the Wyden campaign. And that way they could check with the county and see if their vote was received and then show somebody at the elections office the receipt and say, hey, this guy took my ballot and then threw it away, you know, or forgot it or thought I was a Smith voter, so didn't, you know, didn't put it in. And we specifically were careful to not ever ask people 
directly, you know, are you voting for Gordon Smith and then not go collect their ballot? Because we knew that, you know, that that was not the right thing to do, first of all, and would be horrible to do something like that. And so when we did GOTV, we called Democrats only, I'm sure, presuming they would be the more likely Ron voters. And if they said they wanted their ballot pickup, we picked it up and could have been some Smith votes in there. And we just brought them all in and dropped them off. January Election Day in Oregon ended up being about what you might expect. Rainy, stormy weather. This worried Brian Clem and the Wyden team, creating an even greater urgency to get ballots turned in. There was a um, a big wind and, and ice and snowstorm in January because it was January and it was cold. And we were pretty nervous. People wouldn't go, um, you know, even drop their ballots at the local um, post office or Fred Meyer if they hadn't mailed it in time, because it had to be received by election day. It's not, it's postmarked. It had to be in just like now. So we were thinking, geez, there's a bunch of people sitting on ballots and who knows if they're going to go take them in because the weather was getting really nasty. And we're thinking they may not want to go out in this. I think the governor had actually sent people home from work in Portland because of the windstorm. So we're thinking we got to go out and like get these ballots. So we made all these phone calls to people and said, do you need us to pick them up? And a lot of people said yes. So we went out and did it, and then we took them in. And I never forget, I had been doing it all day. That I'd been doing it for several days. But that day, I had like 35 or 36 in my car. But there, my list was like 50 or 40, you know, 45. And it was like 7, 7.30. And I'm still got 10 to go, and I'm like 7.40. And I'm like, okay, these have to be in by eight or none of them count. And I'm gambling. Can I get that one more? And what if we lose by one? Oops. Well, what if we lose by 40? So finally I get the last one. It's like 748. And I'm not far from the Fred Meyer in East Gresham, uh, a Burnside in Gresham. And I make it at 758 with like 40 ballots in my hand. <laughs> and I just gamble. And I handed them in and they looked at me like, you are lucky. Like that's a lot of people that... You just disenfranchise if you got a bad red light or something, kid. Despite all their efforts, from get-out-the-vote rallies to 24-hour campaign days and getting every last ballot they could, Clem and the Wyden campaign went into election night thinking it wasn't enough. You know, we, we frankly, we thought we were going to lose. Those of us who were in the inside, we had seen the polling and we really thought we were probably going to lose. And so then, as those ballots are being handed in, we're thinking, okay, like hopefully this is worth something. The turnout machine we've got compared to them is worth something, but is it half a point, two points, three points? We didn't know. Nowadays, Democrats and their GOTV efforts are like in Multnomah County, we're thought to have like a 3% automatic advantage just because of how much better we are at turnout. But at that time, no one had done vote by mail except us in the primary, and we didn't have the resources to do that kind of thing. We didn't do any ballot pickups in the primary. We knew that if we could get turnout up, as I said, we knew we were leading among people who hadn't voted, somewhat because they were Democrats coming home, but also the clean campaign pledge. And we just didn't know if it was enough. We didn't. We just didn't know. And the weather was bad, and people were definitely not going to go drop it off. And so had it worked, we don't know. As the results came in, the expectations of most people and the mood of both campaigns flipped. Ron Wyden would be the next U.S. senator from the state of Oregon. Phil Kiesling found it surprising. And it was kind of an unexpected victory in many quarters. I think there was some sense among Republican circles, and again, never talked to the senator directly about this or his folks, but I think they were feeling pretty good 
about the polling they'd seen and the prospects for, for success. Dan Levy shares the Smith team's perspective. I think both sides thought we were going to win. Um, I think, I know our pollster thought we were going to win and told us that. Um, and as I've heard over the years, um, I think Wyden, they were, they were thinking they might lose the race. That's a better way of saying that they weren't. So, um, so we went in pretty confident, um, and uh, we obviously lost, um, I think, by 18,000 votes, um, something like that. I don't remember the exact number. I used to. Jeff Mapes was surprised by how quickly the race was decided. And then the stunning thing on election night was, my recollection is, we were all surprised by how quickly we could tell who won the race, despite it only being an 18,000 vote margin. I think we pretty much called the race that night um, because, you know, it was the only thing on the ballot. So all the county clerks could count the votes very quickly. And boy, did they. Phil Keesling, the Secretary of State at the time, explains why some of the regular ballot dynamics changed due to vote by mail. What people didn't understand is that in a all in a vote at home election like what we did, the ballots that tend to come in on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday uh, tend to be a, a, you know younger, more procrastinating voters. Let's let's call them. Maybe they want to you know check everything and are more conscientious, but also maybe they just waited to the last minute. And in the more urban areas rather than rural, there was definitely a pattern in the 90s where older voters in particular, once they got their ballots, especially if there's only one or two things on it, they just send it right back through the mail and all those get in. And those were already in the counting machine and those results were reflected in the initial you know, tallies that were resulted. So what you had was the Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday voters that were the last to be counted. And what you saw is this lead kept widening and widening, and 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 Wyden's victory became more and more solid uh, with a bigger and bigger margin. It was still a close race. The outcome hit Gordon Smith hard, especially after all of the time, money, and effort that went into the race. Dan Levy and Lori Hardwick share what election night and its aftermath looked like for them. And, um, boy, election night was devastating. Um Gordon, we were at the Governor Hotel. Uh, I do remember Gordon coming out and saying um, something to the effect that he was done with politics. Now, I told him up in the suite, you know, you you don't need to make those kind of decisions tonight. Um, But he was emotionally exhausted. He'd lost like, you know, 20 pounds during the last, during the race. Uh, so as I, but I needed to lose the weight. He didn't. Um, and then in an interview, um, uh, later that evening with Brad Kane of the Associated Press, he went a bit farther and said, I, I don't think I'll be a candidate for any office, you know, ever again, that sort of thing. We were all really disappointed, I guess I would say, very disappointed. Um, And the next day, as I head into the office after a long night, I start getting phone calls from, you know, our finance committee guys saying, hey, so what now? Like, how's it going to work? There's, you know, potentially another seat that's going to happen. What's Gordon, what would Gordon do? 
you know, and I'm like, I, you know, I don't know. We Can we just take a breather here, right? Um, but really those guys, I mean, everybody was so invested in, you know, Gordon more than they were even the seat, to be honest, that um, I think putting himself out there in that way, you don't know what's going to happen because he'd never done it before. But you've put yourself out in front of the whole state, you, your family, and everything. And then to lose, his impression was, because I remember asking him, he says, I feel like I've let everybody down, right? And that's what made him sad about the race and really made it hard for him to consider running again because I think he didn't want to let people down. And for the winning side, Brian Clem's reaction reflected the joy within the Wyden campaign. Just thrilled. I mean, I was really surprised. I really thought we were going to lose. I mean, I really did. We had stopped polling because we didn't have any money. Ron, I think, had loaned himself some just to get through the final two weeks. We didn't really have a poll. But because we were all going till the very last second, most of us got to the election party an hour later because I had to go shower and put on a suit and stuff like that. By that time, Elaine Kogan had called the race for Ron. So like, I mean, once I got there, people were calling it. There's a picture in the New York Times of Ron and Lori Wyden just cheering. And there I am next to him. And I'm just screaming. And it's funny because my jacket is like about three quarters of the way up in my arm, but my shirt sleeve isn't. I've always thought of it and looked at that and said, what a moron I look like. But you know what? No one really cared about the staffer over on the right because there's new U.S. Senator Ron Wyden. But that was uh, that was the picture in my head of that night was absolute shock and elation. Coming up on the final episode of the first season of Revisit the Moment. Gordon Smith grapples with another opportunity to pursue a seat in the U.S. Senate. His decision leads to an unlikely partnership, and we reflect on what Vote by Mail has meant for Oregon over the last 25 years. But I think um, people that supported him convinced him that he didn't let them down. In fact, um, they, you know, he needs to be in the U.S. Senate, and they were very proud of the race that he ran. Their hard-fought campaign and their ability to move beyond it became a part of both of their brands. I think that like the verdict was in a long time ago. It's fantastic. It drives up turnout. It is so much easier for all of us. I think you will see a lot of them looking back and saying, why do we cling to a way of doing uh, election business that in some ways hasn't changed since the fifth century BC? Revisit the Moment is produced by me, Kevin Curry. Audio production and design is by Matt Tibbs. Our research assistant is Elijah O'Brien. We record at Linfield University in the studios of the Linfield Podcast Network. Remember to subscribe to Revisit the Moment so you don't miss out on any episodes. And if you enjoyed our work, give us a rating and a review.